This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Stark here. Uh, I'm joined here with uh, Montgomery uh, Markland uh, to discuss his film uh, Malibu Road. Uh, Montgomery, it's uh, great having you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Excited to talk. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also, uh, I'm joined here with uh, Matt Pegas. That's correct. Yes, good to be co hosting a show again after many months. <laughs> A good place to start before we get to the film is Montgomery. If you just want to kind of give some background about yourself, your background in Hollywood or connection to Hollywood, you're more in the background. It's more in video games, single player games. Yeah. And then a bit off topic, but you also ran for Congress in Texas. If you want to kind of give our audience like a short like bio or introduction. Certainly. Yeah. I have a uh, idiosyncratic and varied resume uh, for the past, you know, 25 years, I, uh, grew up in Dallas and went to St. Mark's and then went down to university of Texas and studied film and history at university of Texas. And while I was at the university of Texas, I started writing for the daily Texan, which was the college newspaper, which got me down around the state capitol. I was the state and local reporter and it got me around the state capitol down there in Austin. And I met people and made friends and ended up getting hired to run Susanna Grasha Hupp's uh, re-election campaign uh, up around like Glampasas and Colleen and Fort Hood and ran her campaign and then went and worked in the legislature as a policy guy for uh, Diane White, Representative Diane White DeLisi, uh, who's uh mostly appropriations in public health and then redistricting. Her son uh, is the fellow that bought Carl Rove's political consulting firm when he had to divest in 2000. And uh, her daughter was uh, Rick Perry's chief of staff. And so I worked in politics for like five years while I was in college at the same time. And uh, then after that, I went to law school at SMU. And the idea was go to law school and get back into politics. My dad's an attorney in Dallas and probably go run for Congress somewhere in the DFW area that I grew up. And at the same time I was in law school, I had always played like the gold box Dungeons and Dragons games, Fallout 1 and 2 back in the late 90s. Neverwinter Nights came out. I started modding Neverwinter Nights, and uh, I was a big fan of Planescape Torment. And so 
we built a really huge mod. We had like a 35 person mod team, all volunteers building like actual 3D assets and rigging them and animating them and recreating the planescape intellectual property inside of Neverwinter Nights. And Atari got interested in it and turning it into an expansion pack. So I ended up not taking the bar and not becoming a lawyer. I went out to California to turn this mod into an expansion pack for Neverwinter Nights. Wizards of the Coast decided to retire the Torment IP, so that didn't actually work out, but it did end up with me becoming a producer at Obsidian Entertainment, which was making Neverwinter Nights for Atari and Wizards of the Coast at the time, and working on that and Alpha Protocol and uh, the Aliens RPG that didn't quite make it because Sega had some financial issues back then. And that was a lot of fun. And uh, about a year later, I, uh, I paired up with a fellow named Lawrence Liberty, and we started a game studio first in Calabasas, partnering up with Emergent Game Technologies, and then moved it down to the CNN building at Sunset in Kahanga uh, called Kill Space. And the idea behind the studio was, uh, as someone who would, you know, is kind of totally fresh to the video game industry and comes from uh, a political background where bringing, this doesn't happen much anymore, but in Texas 20 years ago, you know, 20 plus years ago, it was, uh, it was possible to bring Republicans and Democrats together more often. And so I was looking at the video game business. They were like totally ignoring everything about the movie business. And the movie business was totally ignoring everything about the game business. So there you're was, saying the video there, game business, uh, it's, it's probably changed like the whole like Gamergate thing, but you're saying it was, it wasn't political the way that Hollywood is. No, it was totally, I, it was mostly, it was isolated from Hollywood and, uh, mostly centered in Orange County and San Diego County rather than LA County. And so like Obsidian's in Orange County, uh, Blizzards in Orange County and Exile Entertainment's in Orange County. Um, you know, Sony uh, Game Studios at the time is down there in uh, Northern San Diego County. Uh, so most of the game business in Southern California is in Orange County and San Diego County, and very little uh, up in LA County in the aughts, right? 2000 through 2009. And, uh, and so when I went out there and got my feet wet and learned as much as I could about it, and one of the reasons I got hired as a producer was because I had, you know, worked in politics, gone to law school, video game studios did not have a lot of like NBA guys running around or anybody that had like a real, you know, traditional executive mindset where you could look at something and not really care about the specifics of the creative and be just a objective producer or executive about things. Uh, because most of the people running things when I got there were still guys that had originally been designers or programmers in the eighties and nineties. And so that's why I got hired and, you know, elevated quickly promoted and, Ended up being in a you know, in the you know in the founder C-suite of uh, the then largest game studio in Hollywood, and uh, 
as I looked at the landscape, I was thinking, well, there's a lot of stuff that's being left on the table by these two industries not communicating and not doing business together. There have been a couple of move, of games turned into movies, like maybe like five or seven at that point. Maybe none of them were any good except for Silent Hill. Interesting because like I never, I've never played the video game Silent Hill, but actually thought that the no, I actually thought that the horror film was pretty good. And usually, you think yeah. of video games getting turned into films is not so great. But I, actually, mm-hmm. I think the second Silent Hill, Silent Hill Two, was actually better. Yeah, and uh, what was it? Sean Bean was in the first uh, Silent Hill movie, if I recall correctly. And was it Naomi Watts? I don't remember exactly who was in it. That was a long time ago, but I'm pretty sure it was Sean Bean. And uh, and I thought that was a good movie. I thought it was good, just on its own, a good horror movie. And I was a big fan of the Silent Hill franchise. And I like CRPGs and horror games and uh, multiplayer first-person shooters more than single-player. And then emergent like cross-genre games like Deus Ex, uh, you know, where it's like kind of a shooter, kind of a role-playing game. Um, so I had, uh, you know, come out there. And worked on a bunch of stuff and was on like every game that Obsidian was working on and also was the producer uh, overseeing their development of their in-house game engine, Onyx. And so I got like a crash course in in video game development, programming, project management, game design, producing, everything, QA, whatever. And, uh, and I was comfortable kind of drinking from the fire hose because that's what law school was like and that's what my job in politics was like was just a massive overload of information all at once and synthesizing it and figuring out how to, how to operate in a new environment and so uh, we started Tillspace with the idea that we would directly interface between the legacy game business and the legacy movie business and set up uh, you know a concept development team like a movie studio would have, but do everything with the rigor and the technical prowess that a game studio has because movie companies at that point in time and still to this day are, are very sloppy, right? It's all creative. It's too many people in a room talking about creative ideas and a lot of money getting wasted. With the movie uh, Malibu Road, do you apply mm-hmm. did you like apply the game designing principles to the movies? I think it's especially yeah. kind of relevant as like a lot of like especially millennials and zoomers even more so they have shorter attention spans. So you did yeah. apply game designing principles uh to to cinema. Yeah. I would say we I I transported game design principles and production principles from games to movies. And and by and vice versa, there are there are games that I took movie practices and put them into games. Like uh, Wasteland Two uses a post render uh, visual effects uh, overlay that allows you to do a lot more fancy light and color grading stuff in the game than you could normally do in a regular render pipeline. And I learned that from the movie side of things. Hmm. And taking from the game side of things, like two key things I think were one is from a production point of view, things being uh, agile, but still rigorously project managed. So uh, movies have like a, like a way of doing things 
historically, and it hasn't really changed. Like the way that people produce a movie and organize a movie team today is not now it's changed in the past 10 years with the rise of the superhero movies and stuff like that. But when I was first there, the way movies were made were pretty much the way they were made in like the fifties. And so there was a lot of like best practices from games that could be applied to movies and, uh, and vice versa. And so just not creative at all, just from like a, boring you know how do you organize a team to do a thing for a specific amount of time point of view and so and there were things from both sides that i felt like made the other side better um then the other thing it would be the design thing which is if you're making a video game and people turn it on and it's not fun they're going to immediately turn it off <laughs> and you have like uh you know like maybe, you know, a minute, 30 seconds. You're saying like you know. the, there's this crucial moment because it's different if someone watches the film in theaters, but there's this crucial moment of getting the audience, uh, getting their interest, but also like being yeah. visually uh, stimulating and aesthetically dynamic in the first, at the first uh, segment. Yeah, yeah, which I would say is probably people will give movies a little longer than they'll give video games. Like if someone turns on a video game and doesn't like it, they're just going to turn it off. And uh movie generally, especially because people are used to the theatrical experience, people will usually give movies a little more benefit of the doubt. They'll be a little more hopeful that it will get better as as opposed to in a game, if the controls suck, the controls suck and you don't want to deal with it. Whereas you're like, maybe this will get better in the next minute or two minutes in the movie. And so I think movies get a little more, uh, a little more forgiving audience than, uh, than games do. And so one thing that I wanted to bring over from games to movies when I, when I started making Malibu road was to not, not, uh, not treat them differently from the point of view of, grabbing people's interest, hooking them and maintaining pace. And, uh, and so I was, I would always exhort the editors of uh, Vishal Singh and Aya Goshen uh, to, you know, to increase the pace of the movie and to, you know, the original like rough cut of the movie was three hours long. And I was like, let's get this down to an hour and a half and 90 minutes. And so they they started doing that just over and over and over again, iterating on the edit in a way that that most studio films don't have the luxury of doing because I had raised the money myself for the movie and didn't have to, you know, uh, in game terms, show a milestone report to anybody. you know, there was no studio saying, where's that Malibu Road movie at? Oh, my God, it's going to miss its window because Monty's over there, uh, you know, having the editors re-edit the movie for 18 months. Uh, I had a lot of luxury to to experiment with game concepts, movie concepts, current movie concepts, old movie concepts in in, in the in the course of doing it that I wouldn't have had if it had been a you know, a studio movie where there's like a thousand people involved 
including all of the executives and middle management, et cetera. What would you say is the most, uh, the most gonzo or risky thing that you did in the film as far as cinema photography or just in general? Um, Oh, what's the most risky? I mean, all of it was risky. (laughs) The, uh, I mean, obviously, the most risky thing I did was put myself in it. By yeah, because that wasn't originally else, planned, right? You were looking for a that lead. was not originally planned. Yeah. Someone else was playing the role, and it wasn't working. Like they are a good actor; they've been on TV a bunch, they've been in movies, but it wasn't working. They just weren't like gelling with the other cast members. Yeah, yeah, on screen. And it was a struggle every day. And we shot for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And it just wasn't getting better. And, uh, and, and then we, were, we had shot for over a month. And I was like, all right, we got to do something to change this. So I stopped production and I auditioned more people. I, didn't, I wasn't like, I'll be in the movie. I, I, I wasn't even in the consideration yet. I had mm-hmm. been at Beverly Hills Playhouse. And I, I'm a Meisner trained actor. Right. Spent, I was going to ask you about know, that, yeah four and a half years there and some of the cast also went to Beverly Hills Playhouse and uh can I just sorry to interject I just I used to take Meisner classes myself so I did really want to ask you is that related to what was once called Playhouse West say again I I remember there's a school I think in North Hollywood called Playhouse West that was Meisner based Playhouse West that's uh that's Meisner and that's uh James Franco I think right well he doesn't run the school But that, he did go there. Yes, I was curious. Yeah, yeah. Beverly Hills Playhouse is down on Robertson Boulevard, uh, south, of, uh, south of Wilshire. Um, and like, I guess the most, not- like, the most well-known actors that went there are probably George Clooney, Giovanni Ribisi, Kate Hudson, Mariska Hardigay, Christopher yeah. Maloney. Uh, the the overweight guy from lost I forget mm-hmm. his name, uh, Doris Roberts. Um, so Beverly's playoffs is a very Meisner oriented school. There wasn't any method. Yeah. Style it's just all about that repeating all about Meisner, and... repetition and, you know, creating the character from the outside in was yeah. one of the things that was big in Meisner, you know, like just dress like a police officer and like do things that police officers do don't worry about like you know the the internal don't do anything too fancy method so much yeah. right no, just took, be a police officer <laughs> yeah and they, they start you off by just having you repeat what your scene partner says and the whole philosophy is don't do anything that you're not made to do it's it's very interesting and i think it is one of the best the fastest tracks i think to learn acting that to learn looks, acting yeah that yeah. looks good you know i think there are more advanced things people can do but i think that you know, you'll, you'll lose a lot of bad habits quickly by having foundation in that work. So you were taking that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I took it because I was working in games and I decided two things. One, as the games we were making got more complex with more actors in like cinematic, you know, scenes or cutscenes in the games and stuff, we were dealing with trained actors and we didn't have anybody in the studio that would know how to talk to them. Yeah. Right. So we would just outsource it to someone and get audio back and have no like creative feedback loop or technical feedback loop on the stuff. So one reason I did it was that I thought it would be useful in the game space. And another was that I was always planning on making a movie eventually. And I figured, you know, video games have taught me a lot about how to make a movie. 
most of the things, even if they're virtualized, whether it's lighting or production design or color theory or whatever, uh, or story or dialogue, but it, it certainly did not, you know, teach me how to talk to actors. That, that was my big, you know, knowledge, knowledge gap when going to make a movie. So I figured the best way to fix that knowledge gap would be to go hang out with actors in a Meisner school, learn how to act and learn how actors think. And, uh, so I did that for a long time. I enjoyed it, you know, and it was a lot of fun and made a lot of good friends. And, uh, and some, some of them, including the most prominent probably being, uh, Michael Androkopoulos who plays Ugo von Braun. He mispronounces his name, which I think is one of the funniest things he did in that movie. Yeah. Uh, He's just, he's such a goofball. And, uh, and so he ended up being in the movie and a couple of other, uh, people from our, uh, our class, uh, were in the movie, but were in subplots. They got cut in my like manic aggression to get it down to 90 minutes and, and, and keep it as fast paced as possible and then have no, like no fluff. Um, yeah, the premise of Malibu Road, uh, there's a lot of different converging themes, but I think the, the main narrative is revolving around uh, MK Ultra, and I don't know how much how many spoilers you want to give, but he does. Uh, you're the protagonist who's played by you, who receives this mysterious uh, box, and it's uh, LSD, and it's it's supposedly from Timothy Leary, but it turns out it's related to like the CIA test. And MK mm-hmm. Ultra, your character, uh, I think it's some something Forrester. He's supposed to be a UCLA psychology professor, and that is based upon an actual an actual professor who I think yeah. was involved with these MK Ultra tests in the CIA. So, if you want to kind of introduce uh, that yeah. narrative, I've got the uh, I've got most of the extant videos from the fifties that they did that can be found. And, you know, we'll post them all over the place if we haven't already. Um, but there's uh, there's this one psychiatrist, uh, doctor of psychiatry at UCLA, who's running these LSD-25 induced schizophrenia acid tests for the CIA. And the idea originally with the LSD was maybe we can turn, you know, uh, turn soldiers into super soldiers. And, uh, that didn't work. They just like wandered around, put their guns down, sat down and like laughed and like had a trip. And so they're like, all right, all right, this is useless for, <laughs> for the soldiers. Maybe it's good for, uh, turning spies, discovering double agents, etc. And, uh, and so they started playing around with that idea in MK ultra and the, and little known fact, the CIA bought all of the LSD on the planet in 1957, all of it. And then they started sending it to professors, including Timothy Leary, the fellow at UCLA, a lot of professors, hundreds, right? Because of the government operation, they're not just sending it to Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary is the most famous because he went rogue and like did his own thing with it. Uh, but they sent it to hundreds of professors. And those professors then worked with actual officer, case officers and uh, in, in the technical services division, it's called. And... Uh, and they ran a bunch of tests. They'd give it to a housewife and talk to her, they, you know, in in Southern California. They'd give it to uh, William Malark, uh, this painter, and uh, have him paint something, and then 
give them LSD, wait a few hours, have them paint the same thing again. A picture, and he's actually painting a CIA case officer from the technical services division. And the paintings are radically different. And uh, so we reproduced a lot of those acid test videos or films rather. And, uh, and it was only later I found out that it was actually Erwin Kirshner that, uh, that was a USC film grad student and he got paid like uh, 50 bucks a session to go film those acid tests. He ends up becoming a very influential film professor, uh, you know, for directors in the sixties and seventies and ends up directing Empire Strikes Back. And I thought that was a really odd and interesting connection to all of this. Uh, and as you we, noted in your notes, uh, that's the best Star Wars movie, which it is. It is. Like, that's the, by far the, the best Star Wars movie. And I find it unsurprising that the best Star Wars movie is made by a guy who got roped into, like, a weird CIA mind control cutout experiment uh-huh. in, yeah, in yeah. Southern California. Like, of course, he made the, the most crazy best Star Wars movie because he, he had been, like like thrown into this weird, crazy LSD CIA spook environment, you know, when he was just a grad film student. And so he had a, he had a wild ride. And, uh, and so those acid tests in the fifth, in the, in the mid to late fifties were all part of the, I think more well-known moniker for the program. It's called a cryptonym uh mk ultra uh but then the technical services division started getting crazy and doing some crazier stuff about flipping double agents and finding out who was a cia uh who was a kgb spy and and whatnot uh with a sub program called operation midnight climax and Operation Midnight Climax used uh, safe houses slash black, slide, black sites in Boston, New York City, Southern California, and San Francisco, where they would basically take like uh, a brothel, or I would say a soft brothel. I don't know what that exactly means, but like if you go to like the standard hotel in LA or the that Roosevelt. That would be the the hotel in Malibu in the in the film. Mm-hmm. Is that hotel in Which, Malibu? Wh- is it based Albatross? Is it fictional or based upon a real place? No, it's real. It's real. I uh, I found out I found out about it because I moved to Malibu and I was living next door to the empty lot where the Albatross Hotel used to be, and film, it's just this empty uh, lot. That scene where you filmed the empty lot was that the actual empty lot where the Albatross was? Yeah. That- that, that's the actual empty empty lot. And the, the thing that got me looking at that place, and this is all kind of the weird synchronicity and serendipity, like it was actually a place where Timothy Leary went and where some of this stuff happened. But it also has a broader history in Hollywood. It was called the Film Colony Lodge in the 1940s. And it had been around a long time until it burned. And the thing that got me interested in the lot, and I didn't know that it was connected to the other stuff that I was doing when I was started writing the script, uh was that there were these tall palm trees on the lot, you know, 120 foot palm trees, and they had these burn marks from a fire across these four palm trees or five palm trees that, uh, you know, it all clearly happened at the same time. And so I started asking around Malibu just locally, like the, you know, the guy that owned the country kitchen burger shop and, you know, people had been around for a long time 
in Malibu locals. And uh, I said, you know, what was on that lot? And they started talking about the Albatross Hotel. And I started looking into it. And I found out that Kirk Douglas and Kim Novak were in a movie in 1959 that was shot there in 1960 called Strangers When We Meet. So I found all the footage I could of that. I found a copy of that movie on YouTube and watched that to see what the hotel actually looked like because it burned down. And, uh, and then started connecting the dots between that and the MK Ultra acid test that were going on. And it found and found out that the Albatross was actually one of these. Uh, it was a hotel that movie stars liked and other Hollywood individuals liked to go to in Malibu because back in the 50s, Malibu was a pretty remote place compared to Hollywood. The paparazzi weren't out there or whatever. And they would go have that was a place that people in Hollywood would go to have an affair. But it was also a brothel to some degree. Hmm. And and so the CIA Operation Midnight Climax guys started using, uh, you know, women of the night to uh, surreptitiously dose Johns and then try to get them to admit that they were a government agent and like harass them and like waterboard them and do all sorts of crazy stuff to them because uh, John, you know, that came out to the albatross to get laid with a prostitute isn't going to go complain to the LA times or his congressman because he doesn't want his wife and everybody else in his business at the bank or wherever he works to find out that he was there. And so they were viewed as like uh, easy targets for uh, expanding MK ultra from voluntary subjects to involuntary subjects, which is I think the real subversive shift in the MK Ultra program, as I think uh, they, the CIA, they gave people like LSD without their knowledge. Yes, they would go around and dose people without their knowledge, uh, and then observe them uh, or uh, interrogate them or see if they could get them to admit to things or agree to do things that they wouldn't otherwise normally admit to or agree to do. Uh, and that was individualized at first, and then they expanded it to where, like, and in, you see uh, an event like this happen, they would go to a place like a, you know, kind of uh, party. Or like in the film and where, they, where that everybody woman, in the place. I think she spiked the drinks. Spiked the punch, right? So, and I think you can probably see from the 50s, like a parallel maybe to like, you know, 10 years later 15 years later like the playboy mansion yeah that kind of explains like there's like these three sequences and it gets like you play because the actors remain the same and they don't really age much right it is very much kind of in line with like like how david lynch plays with the narrative plays Mm -hmm. with the sense of time but there are these like three sequences one is in 19 around 1960 and the 1970s then also the present day and you kind of yeah. play with the theme, like what is real and what's not. Absolutely. And, and part of that is that a specific goal that we discussed before we were shooting, while we were shooting, and in post-production, particularly with the editors, the producers, the writers. One of the writers, Ryan Placetti, is a former military intelligence officer. Uh, one of the goals was, uh, and Bashal, our editor, is very 
psychedelically experienced. Um, one of the goals was to create using game design principles, a movie that allowed people who have never done and never will do psychedelics to experience something that's similar to a psychedelic experience. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Tim, well, Timothy Leary, he believed, he believed in some theory where he predicted that technology could recreate it. And like, yeah, so I haven't necessarily this, that, tried it, but one thing that may seem, I mean, this may seem kind of uh, silly, but, Sometimes I like when I'm going to before I get to bed and it's still a kind of a hypnagogic state. I'll watch like these like the trip report channel about psychedelic experiences on YouTube. Even like that, yeah. that kind of like recreates it to a degree. Absolutely. And Leary in his old age, uh, you know, uh, got with a young guy who is one of the founders of the video game industry named Brian Fargo and started working with him on ideas for how video games could produce psychedelic experiences or psychedelic-like experiences, uh, you know, around 1980. And uh, I believe I have no mouth, but I must scream is one of the things that came out of that collaboration. Brian Fargo made Bard's Tale, Fallout, Wasteland, etc. Very well-known guy in the game business. And... Uh, and serendipitously uh, and with some odd level of synchronicity, I was working with Brian Fargo on Wasteland 2 and Torment Tides of Numenera, which was, a, you know, they, these were two things that were based on things that I had tried to recreate when I was a game modder, Planescape Torment, or games that I had, you know, modded or played a lot that led to me working in the game business. So I'm working with Brian Fargo on these games and making this movie about uh, professors like Timothy Leary. The, the protagonist is, is semi-fictionalized in Malibu Road. He's based on several real, you know, university professors that got involved in the acid tests. And uh, I find out that, so like uh, one day I'm looking at the internet and, uh, and I see that the Timothy Leary archives uh, from somewhere have, have been released to the public, uh, you know, at, uh, I think it was like NYU or some museum up in New York. I don't remember exactly where, but it was like a huge list of like thousands and thousands of things. And so I just like started scanning it and looking at it. And I was like, all right, well, this is like all like a huge amount of stuff. Let me look at the appendix. So I just scanned the appendix and then I see Brian Fargo's name in the appendix of the release of the Timothy Leary archives. And Brian Fargo is 20 feet away from me in the, in the office across the game studio. And uh, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> so I like ran into Brian Fargo's office. I said, did you know Timothy Leary? And he says, yeah, funny you should ask. Uh, we, we started working together when I was really young uh, about video games, you know, being a possible way to recreate psychedelic experiences without drugs. And, uh, and Timothy Leary ended up uh, in his will, giving me the life rights to uh, a video game about Timothy Leary. And I was like, my mind was blown. Cause like I was working at an exile and uh, with Brian and putting money from that into the movie. And 
the entire time, like the guy I'm working for is someone who has like a direct, like, and very you didn't clearly even know that, highly personal. And I didn't know that. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's, trippy <laughs> with sort of like psychedelic like aesthetics yeah there's like other films you can make comparisons to like david lynch's films and gaspar knows enter the void but it's interesting because yeah. you successfully did it on a relatively modest budget but how you modulated the movie and different types of like the zoom angles the cinema of photographic techniques the aesthetics and sort of like capturing that line between something that is visually avert versus being in the subconscious and you want to mm-hmm. just kind of comment like how you capture that like psychedelic aesthetic and that sense the hypnagogic feeling yeah so one of the things we did was we decided to first distort your sense of time by having the same people play characters that don't age over the course of decades right and and have all of them at one location, the Albatross, when they start, and have a you know inciting incident with Operation Midnight Climax, where they all get dosed with LSD, and then it's not really clear from that point on until the end what's actually happening, and so the characters themselves are put into a psychedelic experience. That's step one, and then step two was okay. Now that's what we're doing structurally. That's what the script says. But how do we make that something that the audience can appreciate and see and feel and hear? And so one of the things we did was we, uh, within you know our limited budget, I mean, it's a $2 million movie. It's not a lot of money for a movie, but that's not a trivial amount of money. So we could do some things, uh, you know, we weren't going to do like a gastrono end of the void level of VFX or anything. Uh, and that was explicit. I explicitly like said, don't do, we're not going to rely on visual effects to create a perception of a psychological experience. We're going to rely on everything else. And because uh, we just plain don't have the money. And I don't think it's that good anyways. Honestly, I'm not knocking gastrono here. He did really something interesting with end of the void, but like the bird with uh, uh, with the crystal plumage is kind of a psychedelic experience movie that nobody really thinks also, of uh, it as being. I mean, I, I liked Enter the Void, but it was a real, I haven't seen it in a really long time. But I think also the way to do the kind of psychedelic theme with avoiding overt cliches. Yes, absolutely. And so I was like, what are things that no one has done that we can do that bends reality for the audience by treating the audience as the protagonist of the movie while presenting an obvious protagonist and antagonist and etc on screen but really using the concept of movies as a mirror to turn the audience itself each individual member into the protagonist in a psychedelic experience that they're having right now in the theater or on screen and so i started thinking about acting video games what do we do to change? So like in video games, you have the lava level, the ice level, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's a pretty simple idea. Maybe we can do something like that in the movie that helps reinforce a sense of timelessness. And so 
when we shoot the 1960s, we use as much as we can. The lenses and cameras were too big, so we didn't do that. But uh, but a lot of the equipment we used and the lights we used uh, were from 1960. And, uh, you know, we aimed for a pseudo technicolor kind of crossover color grade. And, and, uh, and I instructed the actors to ignore all of their training and act like it was the 1950s and no one had ever been to Lee Strasberg. Well, how much of an influence would you say that, uh, Lynch's Mulholland drive was on, on that theme of playing with time and also the, the aesthetics too? The number one, I think, uh, you know, I would say Mulholland highway too. Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, The Big Sleep, which is pre-psychedelic, uh, but is a weird, like, strange movie that kind of presages Lynch, you know, 40 or 50 years earlier. Um, you know, all of these movies live in a space that is, uh, I think the first person that put, like, a word on it was German in the... 1800s, they called it a trom novel, a dream novel. And Alice in the Wonderland is, you know, right in that space. Surreal, um, you say just surrealism in general? Yeah. And uh, uh, playing with the idea that stories are representations of dreams. And that is very similar to the idea that a psychedelic experience is a waking dream which I think Philip K. Dick would agree with. And, uh, and maybe Larry as well. Um, and so we, we used uh, the color, right? Like uh, 1960s is like very like distinct color. Like it's, it's almost technicolor when you watch it. And uh, you know, the, the, the reds are super red and the, you know, blues are super blue and the blacks are super black. And, uh, you know, it's very like, it's a very like constrained and uh, organized color palette. And then in the seventies, we were like, what did the seventies movies look like? Well, they look like this. Okay. Well, we had the same with seventies. We, and we you also had to get, get uh, the different, the furnishings and interior designs and aesthetics. Like mm-hmm. that was, must've been pretty planned out. And it's, Think kind of like, t- like a yeah. tiki bar aesthetic too. Yeah, yeah, which was super popular in the fifties and early sixties in Southern California because people came back from the war in the Pacific, and you know they that was uh, a thing that came back with them, and uh, and so tiki bars popped up all over Southern California in the fifties. Uh, Albatross itself had a tiki uh, aesthetic. And so we found uh, like obviously actually, like uh, like Palm Springs is not obviously not referenced, but the aesthetic right. that makes me think of like Palm Springs. Absolutely, I, I agree one hundred percent. It's a very Palm Springs is an interesting place. It's sort of like uh, those uh, those like mid century motels. Like a lot of them, they yep. used to be like budget motels, and I noticed there's been this trend of like re- revamping them to become like more upscale, like boutique motels. Upscale, yeah, boutique, motels, it's like a cool experience to go to. Yeah, 
that that's happened. Like an Airbnb has kind of like driven some of that over the past uh, yeah. like maybe five years or whatever, right? So like that th- recreating that thing became popular, and but that thing was like the normal thing in Southern California in the fifties and early sixties, and uh, and so so there's a lot of like buttons to push or uh, cards to pull to recreate these kind of feelings. One is what does everything look like? What are the props? What are the what are people wearing? Like put Lillian in something that Marilyn Monroe would wear. Put all of the guys in tuxedos, uh, you know, like nobody's not, no, not, I don't think any of the other than the bartender even. So none of the guys in the 1960 section of the movie are wearing anything other than a, than a tuxedo, right? It makes it simple for the wardrobe department and is very on with the, with the vibe of the time. There's also oh. an influence from like uh, soap operas, telenovelas, and even, I noticed a mm-hmm. bit like, those like nineties, like softcore porns from like HBO and Showtime it was interesting because yeah, like cinematic, David Lynch's yeah. Twin Peaks was also really influenced by soap operas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the thing that, so the thing that got me onto that trip in relation to Malibu road was certainly David Lynch leading the way. I watched all of his stuff and I asked him, why is he, you know, I asked myself, why is he doing this? And, and what is this supposed to mean in reference to how he's manipulating people's sense of time and people's sense of reality while they're watching the movie. And, and I, and, and I realized that a lot of it has to do with how a soap opera is actually structured. So, and how it's acted. So a soap opera ends in medias res every episode, right? Like that's what a soap opera is. It's why they can last for 20 or 30 years because nothing is ever uh, resolved, right? Every episode begins and ends without resolution. And that's what keeps people watching it over and over and over again. And, And then the acting, soap operas generally don't have access to the best actors. So everything is a little over the top. And to me, those two ideas, learning from and taking from you know, what David Lynch had already done, made a lot of sense to me for a psychedelic movie about the CIA. Acid tests was, well, if we inject this persistent, recursive lack of resolution, it will create something that's similar to the the time distortion effects of having a psychedelic experience. And if everybody's acting a little over the top, that also mirrors what people experience in a, in a, you know, in a psychedelic experience, you'll be looking at someone and they'll be talking and they'll be saying something that might be totally mundane. And all of a sudden it'll seem like the most crazy thing ever someone ever said. So Hindu and Buddhist mythology, that was also informative and influential. Uh, yeah, like the, the Vedic Chronicles, but then with Hinduism and then with Buddhism, uh, Timothy Leary had an interest in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And I remember that, I remember the show Matt and I did with Jay Dyer on the movie Jacob's Ladder, which is inspired yeah. by the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But mythology and spirituality plays a fundamental role. So... I would say that from the Tibetan Book of the Dead 
uh, you know, experience as refracted through Leary's re telling of it as a mid century psychedelic experience with a synthetic chemical LSD, uh, and the focus on the idea of ego death. Um, the Tibetan book of the dead is a template for the structure of the movie. Uh, the idea is that when you is the Bardo Thodol, uh, when you die, you go into an ego death is it is in a psychedelic experiences of sort of death. You go into this intermediate state. And the 1972 period of the movie is that intermediate state. And then we yank you out of that intermediate state back to reality. You didn't actually die watching the movie. And uh, in, in present day, right? We bring you back to you're watching a normal movie. Yeah, like during that scene, the 1970s scene, like a lot of stuff doesn't make doesn't make sense. Anything. Like, why is your character <laughs> giving that guy twenty thousand dollars, and then why does mm-hmm. he pump in like horse tranquilizer in him? Like a lot of the stuff is just so random. Yeah, it, it's like why is any of this happening? But if you like, yeah, it makes me think of like I, when you have a dream. Like a lot of the stuff in your dream is like that outlandish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it like kind of bounces around. You're like walking around a jungle, and then you're walking up a staircase. And the couples, like the, the, the hitchhiker really couples, don't they and... don't they swap wives? But it's not. But they, they sort of like they become like new couples, and like nothing happened. Yeah, which is very dreamlike, right? Like in a dream. You know, some dream theorists say that all of the characters are you in a dream, and usually there's like, you know, three main characters in the dream, but it's all you. Uh, that portion of the movie is very tied into the Tibetan Book of the Dead and dreams and psychedelic experiences and how people view themselves and how their view of themselves can change and how their view of other people changes based on how they view themselves. And so the, like, and we do like several things in the movie that break rules in this area. Like we kill people multiple, multiple times, right? People become different characters and different people are paired together in like inverted or mirrored ways at different points in the movie and, and, and there's also that, uh the the archetypes of the mm-hmm. main character he's both powerful and flawed but they're at the same yeah. time like it's not it's you i think you you described it as a, it's not postmodernist. there are like for instance like there are kind of a like clear gender roles too but mm-hmm. there are kind of interesting like more kind of like classical like archetypes. Yeah. So I looked at Greek Greek mythology and Hindu uh, spiritual texts. There's this concept of devas in, uh, and I might be mispronouncing that. Devas. devas it's like a spiritual. It's like not so, so much like, not so much a god, but like different spiritual avatars. That it's, it's, it's I think interesting it's, yeah. because. Uh, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent because like I'm writing a, an article 
uh, about spirituality, but it's kind of interesting the idea that it's very different than the Abrahamic faiths, but it's interesting there are like yeah. different spiritual avatars, but for different people's like distinct personality types. Yes. It, it's like a, it, you can put like a. Probably like, like a really 20th, relevant to Jung as well. Jungian, yeah, Jungian archetypes. The hero's journey are Western developments that spring from Greek mythology originally and Sumerian mythology originally, uh, you know, that that propagated West. But propagating East, Hindus had this same or similar concept where like – so like Pericles or, you know, like Hercules or, uh, you know – uh Persephone, like people that were uh not gods on Mount Olympus, right? But were uh, you know, in Greek mythology it was very simple. They were half gods or whatever. One parent was a archetypes. god. They were they were archetypal individuals that have lasted for thousands archetypal characters that have lasted for thousands of years, all the way up through movies, even movies that don't play around in a in a metaphysical sense you know a tom cruise movie he's playing an archetype that has been an archetype forever and you know the hero's journey and the you know i forget the right the author of it but that book was very influential on you know uh spielberg and lucas and uh, star wars and indiana jones so if you look at malibu road uh the character that actually goes on a hero's journey is Lillian, the blonde, plays Dorothy Crowder, right? My assessment of your character is there's different. He plays different. Uh, Forrester, he plays different roles. Like towards the end, there's this sense of in delirium when he's being uh, interrogated by the police, like some sense of yeah that he's going crazy. But I, my impression is he's more of the narrator. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the movie. What, how I would it, a lot of this again because we were independent, we had the luxury of experimenting. Uh, a lot of that is is really based on on the idea of an unreliable narrator, and so and and an antihero. And so at times, I think Dr. Raymond Forrester is is the antagonist, right? Which is, and I do want to talk about this in another frame beyond just how the movie works, but in terms of how things happen when a director is in the movie. Uh, But Raymond Forrester is an antagonistic force in general, even if he is the most prominently consistent character in the movie he's antagonizing for the most part all of the other characters and so that makes the audience pick sides in the movie you know there's there's team lillian there's team jessica with four star like your character you don't really know what his motive is right which 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 gets back to the unreliable narrator thing, and uh, which is, you know, 
heavily tied to movies and novels that have been inspired by a deep understanding of mythology, mythos, and spiritual history in the Orient and the Occident, and Trom novellas, and all of this stuff, the unreliable narrator is a critical element to creating a reflexive experience for the audience or the reader, if it's a book or whatever. Uh, not being able to trust the person that's narrating creates a sense of tension. And you don't know if what they're saying is true or not. So now you become the detective in the story, trying to parse what you're seeing versus what's being told to you. I don't know if you're, if you've seen the film from the nineties, uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas, but Hunter S yes. Thompson, who is reference was a big influence on you as a writer. Yes. So I read a bunch of Hunter S Thompson stuff, uh, when I was younger, before that movie came out and I watched that movie. I enjoyed it a lot. I think I probably watched it in the theater and then probably watched it again when it was on might've been on VHS back in those days. Yeah, probably. And, uh, or maybe on DVD. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was like a thing that was, the movie was a thing that was kind of in the back of my mind and more in the forefront of my mind in terms of Hunter S. Thompson's experience with this entire journey that many people have gone on and some people have survived would you say also would you say also William S. Burroughs as far as like the extreme delirium yeah William S. Burroughs uh, Allen Ginsberg yeah uh, yeah Aldous Huxley um, Philip K. Dick uh, yeah I think Hitchcock dabbled in it a little bit in the later stages of his career with Vertigo, especially. Um, Vertigo is a very, like, idiosyncratic Hitchcock movie, which is why people hated it when it first came out, because it wasn't a Hitchcock movie from their point of view, right? They were expecting, like, or, you know, they were expecting, like, uh, Rebecca or Notorious or whatever. And Vertigo is, like, a really weird movie where Jimmy Stewart plays a really, like, obsessive, like, weird guy. And you never really know what's going on until the end. And it has a really dark downer ending. And, uh, and, and Vertigo is very much a movie about making a movie and a movie about the audience's perception of the movie and the story and the characters in the movie. And so in Vertigo, I would say Alfred Hitchcock is the unreliable narrator. He just doesn't speak. He, he lets the characters express the unreliable narrator portion of the thing through his words, which one of my favorite lines in any movie ever is when Jimmy Stewart is up at the top of the mission tower with Kim Novak. And he says, you shouldn't keep souvenirs from a killing. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and he's so like, you're so used to Jimmy Stewart being like the nice guy and everything. And he's just like, like, off the rails at this point like 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 
like almost psychopathic Jimmy Stewart. Do you see and even like, breaking the really fourth wall? Uh, yeah, like uh, does your narrative? Would you say your narrator, uh, Forrester, your character breaks the fourth wall at all? So that's a really interesting question, and I don't know if he does. I don't think he does, but that is. A I know that I do things in the movie that causes that... like confusion for the audience. I know, I, I know, I mean, like, I spike the camera and talk to you, right? And that's technically breaking the fourth wall, oh, yeah. but it doesn't appear to, it doesn't appear to have... I think you do, like, but in, it's in the more, black su- and white, more right? subtle. It's more subtle, like, and if you actually, like, look at other movies, like, sometimes other movies have broken the fourth wall and people don't notice. And, and it's a weird, I don't know if it's a, a trick or a just the way the vibe is of the movie, but like Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins is staring straight into the camera sometimes when he's talking to Jodie Foster, and Jodie Foster is staring straight into the camera sometimes when she's talking to Anthony Hopkins. And it's part of what builds the tension between those two and builds the audience's uh, interest in their in their dynamic and gets them to relate to them. Because when someone looks you right in the eye in a movie, you're going to feel a different way even if it doesn't break the fourth wall. And so I think we, like a lot of things in Malibu Road, looked at that as can we do things that would normally break the fourth wall, but because it's a psychedelic dream experience, can we do it without actually breaking the fourth wall? And so a lot of it was modulating things with the editor. Like I would be like, just break the fourth wall as aggressively as possible and see what happens. And he'd do it and we'd laugh. And then we'd be like, that's not right for the movie. <laughs> and so we'd dial it back, you know, like tuning a guitar. And, uh, and, and so I don't think we actually break the fourth wall in the movie, though we do things that, in most movies would break the fourth wall. And with the filming locations, I noticed like when you film at Malibu Creek State Park and you film at Will mm-hmm. Rogers State Park. Well with Will Rogers, like you film like the the equestrian center or the stables. Yeah, like, yeah. I remember I used That's when I lived in LA, there. like I used to go running running there all the time. Yeah, I love that place. And all those like it it mostly got cut out because it was a subplot, but you didn't there. show that, but there's like an there's like an old house. It's like a museum there, that where mm-hmm. Will Rogers obviously lived. Yeah, yeah, his actual house, which is now like the office of the park rangers and sheriffs that maintain the. the oh, really, park. I think he used to be able to take a tour there. I haven't I haven't been there in years. Oh yeah, you can take a tour of it, but on the top floor, on the back side, you go up some stairs, and the office for the people oh right manage the place is up there on the second floor on a in a back entrance and that was actually funny like, i don't know how much time we have but there was a funny thing was that the park rangers in charge of real Rogers state park like you know we have our we have rented the you know the park for two days and paid for rangers and sheriff's deputies to be there and all that stuff it was some of the more expensive shoot days and unfortunately like uh some of some of the best stuff from that, which we'll release, you know, in like an extended cut or just on its own, uh, got cut because it was subplot stuff. Uh, 
not related to like the main propulsive pace of the movie. And so like all the cast and crew are starting to arrive and I'm like, I better find like who's in charge of like this place to like, just be like, Hey, we're here. <laughs> and, uh, so I finally found the office and I walked up the stairs, the back of Will Rogers old house and knocked on the door of the office of the Rangers. And, uh, the guy that came out, like burst out of the door and said, Will Roger is the greatest American of all time. Hmm. <laughs> like the first thing he says to me, he didn't introduce himself. That's why I was there. <laughs> he just says that. And so I was like, yes, sir. Will Rogers is the greatest American. And we're here to shoot a movie and we're honored. to be." <laughs> and uh, it was really like, funny it was like uh like as if i was in a movie while i was making the movie i was like what is this guy talking and then like, yeah, it seems like almost yeah, like something that would happen in a lynch movie yeah it was like dennis hopper was running will rogers state parking or like the cowboy like, the cowboy and the cowboy and mulholland drive yeah, the cowboy and mulholland drive how many how many drivers does the buggy have <laughs> and yeah. uh, it was totally like that and i was like whoa that's weird but i rolled with it because that's my job as the director i was like yes absolutely and uh and so we had a good time at will rogers state park shooting all the stuff and we had a good time with and the guys that were there you know working there had a good time because it's more exciting than the usual day at the park you know and uh our one we used three dps that uh, cinematographers uh for each uh, time period that's kind of boring and technical we did that for intentional reasons uh to create a different look for each thing but uh one, but our uh one of our uh cinematographers just did a interview with Harrison Ford at Will Rogers State Park in the same stables where we do that whole weird trippy sequence with Jessica and uh and so after he said that, like, and we shot, I was like, that was so crazy. I have to do something about it. So I made shirts that, that have a picture of Will Rogers and say what the park ranger says about him being the greatest American and made it, oh, made shirts and, and like gave, it to, the, gave it to the, the crew. Yeah. I mean, we'll probably, yeah, we'll, we'll make them available to, to the public. The crew uh, should have on, these, these shirts. It's funny. <laughs> the film it's on like a, it's on a streaming site. Uh, what are your plans with streaming? Uh, where where to find it now, and do you plan to get it onto more streaming? Yeah, uh, it is on. Uh, it's in ninety two countries. It's banned in seven. <laughs> it's really? banned How did in it get China. Banned? China they banned, banned it everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, China banned it. Uh, North Korea banned it. Syria banned it, which I didn't really get. Iran banned it, which I get uh cuba bandit and venezuela bandit and uh maybe indonesia uh i mean some of that is like this is not some of that is cultural like i think the indonesian ban is cultural i don't even think the, like the sex the sexual stuff or the sex the sex it, scenes it's not that's not that explicit like i'd say it's no no R, it's, it's our rate it's R-rated, but if it, it can almost be like PG-13, it's not that explicit. Yeah, yeah. If we cut like three shots and one person saying the F-bomb, it would be PG-13. And so, uh, other than the drugs, you're automatically an R if people use drugs. 
but uh, you know, since people use use LSD in the movie, automatically an R. But other than that, uh, if you cut three like you know half a second or one second shots from the movie in the sex scenes, and uh, and and removed one use of the f bomb it would be you know basically madman tv safe right because most people think that there's a lot more nudity and sex in the movie after they watched it like if you go like take like a random audience and and ask them you know about that it's not really an explicit movie no. in any way did you have like doubts about whether to make it more explicit or keep it cleaner um my that that's that I actually relied almost entirely on my Meisner acting training and my good relationship with all the members of the cast to dial the exact level of sexuality and chemistry and and scenes related to that in the movie. Uh, like everybody in the movie would have gone like Mike, Michael Andrikopoulos. There's a scene that got cut out of the movie where. You know, he's bare-assed and full frontal naked. And it just didn't work for the vibe of the movie. And uh, and so all of the cast would have gone, you know, would have dialed it to 11 if we felt like it was necessary. But in all things related to acting as a director before I was in the movie and when I was in the movie, I said, look, we're going to take things from, we're going to, we're going to, say this is a car or a motorcycle that we're driving it doesn't have five gears it has a million gears where can malibu road be found online and do you have any other like upcoming projects or for now you're mostly yeah. focused on promoting the film uh we're talking to a lot of people uh right now about doing a multi-picture deal for the next round of movies uh you know all of the obvious studios and streaming platforms um one of the producers uh prince akeem who's like been my friend since i was 10 years old is driving a lot of that out in southern california um and so deciding what we make next is 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 important to me because i don't want to make a acid movie not for the next one honestly because uh, if I do then I'll just be the acid movie guy and uh, you know I'm I'd like something a little more simple next time because we threw the kitchen sink at Malibu Road and I'd like something a little more Brian De Palma structured you know uh, or Martin Scorsese structured for number two um, the uh, the place you can find it I mean in my opinion the best two options are Amazon and Tubi. If you want to own the movie, buy it on Amazon and buy the high definition or 4K version. Because well, Amazon, if, like, if you're a member and Tubi is totally free, but there are like annoying mm -hmm. advertisements, but that's fine. Yeah, if you, if you don't want the advertisements, go to Amazon. You can also get it on an app. You, you can get it on pretty much every streaming platform. Voodoo, Plex, uh, Zumo, the ones with the public library card, like Coupla, uh, you know, uh, random ones that are like focused on film noir and weird Lynch movies like Dark Room. Uh, 
But uh, if you want to buy, if you want to own it, I would say Amazon is the best place to go because like, unlike some, you know, I'm not a big movie studio. So like if you buy something on Amazon from a big movie studio and then the movie studio yanks it all to put it on Peacock or, or HBO Max or whatever, you know, uh, you might lose the movie from your library. You know, that doesn't happen often, but it happens some. That's never going to happen with Malibu Road because I'm not going to ever take it off of Amazon. So uh, if you want to own the movie, I think Amazon is the best place to own it unless you like Apple TV and, and that's your preferred platform. That's, you know, I would say go buy it on Apple if you prefer Apple TV to Amazon. Uh, I, I would, I don't know if this is bad, uh, bad business, but I would say don't bother renting it because you can watch it with ads. And if you rent it and you want to watch it again, you're going to end up buying it. Now you're going to spend like, you know, 150% of what you would have spent if you just bought it outright. So, uh, you know, it, it really, I do think that the ads do interrupt the flow of the movie a little bit, but we were very meticulous in where we put the ad breaks. And so I was pleasantly surprised on Tubi and Plex that uh, the ad breaks don't really disrupt the experience as much as I thought they would. In some ways, maybe it gives people a breather. Uh, you know, I don't like watching with ads. I don't. I, I would always prefer watching something without ads. But uh, you know, it's really easy to just click on the Tubi link and and watch it. I mean, you don't even need to create an account. So. Uh, it's about as simple as you can watch a movie. Um, eventually, it's going to be in theaters after streaming. It, it's going to be one of the first movies that's that does that, that inverts the window uh, because it was originally going to be in 1500 theaters in the U.S. in 2020, and all the theaters were closed. It came out like right before the pandemic. I think it was 2019. Yeah, we we did the premiere in uh, in Q4 of 2019, and then started gearing up for the theatrical release in Q1 of 2020, and then everything shut down. So there was no theatrical release. Yeah, the film it's not overtly. There's nothing really political in it. It's for like you can be any political persuasion, like liberal yeah. or right wing or whatever. But do you see how like how destructive do you see like the politicization? of entertainment and media is having uh, is being stifling and I, on the other side like there are these like conservative filmmakers who make stuff that's overtly political i think a lot of that yeah. kind of stuff like like totally fails it does and there's a reason and uh so i watched the industry get hyper politicized over the past you know 10 years and it's been bad and people don't like it they don't like the movies and that's why they don't go to the theater. And that's why streaming has crushed theatrical so much. AMC has gotten to the point where you can submit a movie on their website to show at AMC theater. The last, actually the last time I saw a movie in theaters was Joker in 2019. Yeah. And so like most movies are so agenda driven now to come out of Hollywood 
that most people don't like it. But the opposite is not what they want. They don't want a bunch of right wing. Some of that stuff is cringe. Like, remember, so I never saw it, but there's a movie like the conservative, like a conservative version of the Christmas carols, and it seemed pretty cringe. Yeah. I mean, like, I really don't want to sit down and, like, watch a movie, watch 500 movies about abortion <laughs> and how bad it is. Like, I'm pro-life, but, like, I don't want, like, that's not entertainment. That's political. And I don't think there's a lot of right-wing influencers that are, I don't even know what influencer is, but I, I'm... I'm the only time I've been on social media is when I'm working on a project and talking about it. But uh, there's apparently like right wing influencers. They're like, we're going to make like right wing movies. That's not what people want. They want entertaining movies and entertainment. Like po- politics has infused so many sections of life. Like why infuse a movie with politics? Like Malibu Road has a certainly has an ideological perspective because I directed it and I have an ideological perspective. You can't separate the two, but, and so, and the same is true of everybody. Somebody asked me when uh, we were at the, we, you know, all the press people at the premiere, uh, you know, interviewed like cast and crew and me and, and, and they asked me something about uh, the guy that made get out. I forget his name. Jordan, is it Jordan Peele? Jordan Peele, right. Yeah. They, they asked me, what do you think about Jordan Peele saying he wants to cast all black people in this next movie? I was like, what's his fucking movie? He can cast whoever he wants. <laughs> what do I care? You know, I cast who I want in my movie. He gets to cast who he wants in his movie. Like, uh, I'm not interested in, in it being political. Like, if I wanted to, if I wanted everything to be political, I would still be working in politics. Uh, Movies are inherently political in the way that people. The question them, is but... overtly political. I think everything is at least interconnected. Everything's interconnected to politics, but the, I guess the distinction is overtly political versus overtly like political implicitly. versus like 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 sophisticatedly subtextual, which most great movies are. Like Hitchcock movies, Ford yeah, for movies, sure. or Sturgis I movies. Think, I think the other angle is like there is this idea that a lot of classical liberals promote this idea of like a purely of institutions as like hundred percent, like politically neutral. And I think on that, that end, like that can be kind of naive. Yes. So I agree with that 100%. And a lot of my, like, I wouldn't say conflicts, but I would say battles that were, you know, boardroom battles or writer's room battles or arguing about how Wasteland 2 or Torment at NXL should be or whatever. You know, there was a there was a, always a political element to it, uh, but or an ideological element to it. And my point would always be. Uh, make it for the audience, you know, like. Uh, it, it, it didn't work out for exigent reasons, but the Apocalypse Now video game that I organized, um, 
the audience was 96% male. So we're not making the movie for women. Or may, I mean, making the game out of the movie for women. Like, the audience is 96% male. We're going to make the movie for men. Or make the game for men. And, uh, and, and doing something else is just like being petulant, I think. Um, you know, if you're like, it, it would be like, Hey, Chris rock, why don't you do something that's like super popular with Asians? <laughs> like, no, that's not what I do. <laughs> like, 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 it's just absurd. Like nobody's it's kind of like it's, it's wokeness, but it's also just like marketing and the nature of, of capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's true too. Like marketing became so subsumed by politics because of globalization and like Chinese markets, like Marvel is kind of right. like boring and not offensive because it has to be for the whole market. Avatars like the same to get way. something like, like really people don't really offend people. Yeah, not to offend people, because something that's really groundbreaking is going to offend people, and it also yes. depends on kind of like a niche market rather than a mass market. Yes, and it's hard to put a P&L and a discounted cash flow statement in front of a bank and say, we're going to do this, and it's going to piss off like half the world. <laughs> like, it makes right. bankers nervous, right? Uh, even though like they're missing a very important point that a guy who started a circus, P.T. Barnum said, which was, you can, you know, fool half the people half the time or whatever it was he said. Right. Like, uh, like, the best thing you can have is something that pisses off half the planet and the other half of the planet loves. That thing is going to be extremely profitable in entertainment. Before I wrap up the show, uh, this is a totally, like, off-the-wall question that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but since... With all these like bank failures and this like doom loop with the Federal Reserve like raising rates versus fighting inflation, like do you think there's gonna be like people online, like especially in certain subsets, talk about like the collapse? Like what are your general thoughts on specifically the financial crisis and just like trajectory of current events over like the next year, especially economic? Yeah, like people say, yeah, people say like is there gonna be a collapse or not or all that kind of stuff. Right, right. I think that, and this probably, you know, gets me watchlisted, but I'm already watchlisted in a thousand ways. <laughs> Whatever. Um, we we have been exporting at inflation for years now. And what we're doing now and what I expect to occur. And I'm an amateur in finance and macroeconomics from a geopolitical. Watch like those financial YouTubers, like well, there's a whole bunch of them. I'm a I'm a professional when it comes to politics, I'm a professional when it comes to video games, I'm a professional when it comes to movies. With this kind of stuff, like I'm an informed amateur. And uh, my my take on it or my gut feeling is is that what China and the U.S. and Germany and Russia, like the top 10 GDP countries are going to do, regardless of who wants to be the reserve currency or anything else, is going to export and weaponize 
monetization to the bottom 50% GDP countries on the planet, and it's going to cause mass. Oh, you're saying what they're doing is they're exporting inflation via the interest rates to the to the developing nations or the third world. Right. That's going to totally crash like their economies. It's going to crash their economies. It's going to cause civil wars. It's going to cause revolutions. You're going to have like you're going to bifurcate the world into the relatively stable. But inevitably insolvent and the totally crushed. Well, if interest rates in particular, when Volcker raised rates in the to deal with inflation around 1980, like that totally crashed Latin America's economy. If you see all these different yeah. nations like Pakistan and South Africa that seem on the verge of collapse, even like yeah. Latin America. Are there there's places in Latin America that have like a hundred percent inflation year over year right now? And I think Argenti- Argentina and Turkey are the highest inflation, but with yeah. the United States, there's like this doom loop. So. If they, if, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, but if they keep raising rates, then there'll be more bank failures. But if they don't, but now you're seeing like a kind of like a Fed pivot, return to quantitative easing. And if they, if they don't raise rates and they get inflation and that, and obviously like, then there's going to be mass unemployment. So they're, they're in this like death spiral. I, I would call it Chinese finger cuffs moment. Right. Uh, if you just try to pull both fingers at once, you're not getting out. Uh, you're going to see more bank failures. That's guaranteed. Um, but I don't think there's going to be a systematic run on banks because like uh, here well, in the Texas, smaller, example, the regional, there's these like regional banks. So these regional banks, they make up about like half of commerce and yeah. yeah, if they if they all crash, there's contagion that could cause a depression. I don't know if that necessarily will happen, but right now it seems more like consolidation into these like too big to fail banks. So you're seeing everyone taking out of money out of these smaller regional banks yeah. into the big I mean, banks. I, I had a phone call with my dad the other day. He was like, uh, you know, he is very conservative. He's hyper boomer, and he. Uh, got into money market. He, he took everything out of the market, stock market, and put it into you know uh, long dated, high interest rate treasuries and money market funds uh, before most other people did, before Silicon Valley Bank obviously did, and uh, so he feels really comfortable and he talks to his you know. Money is is you know uh, financial advisor. He says you know everybody wants to get into what you got into you know six months ago or whatever. And so there's gonna be a rush to safety, but a rush to safety like it's a it's a seesaw. So if everybody rushes to safe middling returns. Or you even see that like there's a there's a rally on the Nasdaq because people are taking their money out of like the S and P five hundred and the Dow and putting yeah it in, the, in the Dow, but it's like they go back and forth. But that's obviously not sustainable. And you see these like these stock rallies. These stock rallies happen based on bad news because it's like a sign of a Fed pivot. All right.
this is kind of an inside joke, but this financial YouTuber I like, Maverick of Wall Street, like he'll he'll mm-hmm. use this like gif. He'll use like this gif of like Jack Nicholson from Cuckoo's Nest, like jerk jerking off as like a financial <laughs> metaphor for that. For like Jerome Powell pumping like yeah. the most money. Anyone it's like is Jack or Nicholson and that, I don't know if you've seen it like from the movie from like the, <laughs> the one flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know exactly the scene. <laughs> yeah. Well that's her new uh, oh, avatar, right, Robert? Right, right. Actually it's I have my next article's on that. So that's uh well it's this a, show will probably be posted after the article, but that's coming out soon. GIF or it's on the, the economic phenomenon. Well, well, sort of both. So we're at the end of the show. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Malibu Road. Great film. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Montgomery Markland, for being on. Oh, and I also my, my, th- my pleasure. I'll, I'll, I, I'm happy to talk anytime. I've enjoyed talking with you guys. And uh, the one thing I would say is that I do see – I'm older. I'm 45 on March 23rd. And I do see in like the Zoomer and younger millennial uh, a a feeling that they can't do things that they are uh, doomed by fate to be reactionary. Are you talking about yeah. like normies? You're talking about like black pill dissidents. Yeah, yeah, normies, normies. The dissidents okay. are like we're gonna we're gonna do all sorts of stuff. Whatever we do, it'll be crazy and awesome. Uh, but the normies, I feel like are like yeah, getting, like, it's sort of like especially with Zoomers, like it's almost yeah fatalistic, but then all in some ways like much less rebel, actually much less rebellious than past generations. Oh yeah, for sure. This kind of dead. like almost yeah. kind of prudish or puritanical even. Yeah, or just puritanical neo neo progressive neo Victorian like conformity and fatalism at the same time, and I really despise that uh, trend. I don't I'm, I don't despise the people that are experiencing that feeling. I understand why they're experiencing that feeling. Feeling, but what I would say is like, you know, it ain't been that long since I started shooting Malibu Road. And I'm not that much older than you. Like you can just go do things and be successful and chase your dreams. Still the, the ability to chase your dreams has not been diminished by the past three years. You only your perception of your ability to chase your dreams has been diminished. In fact, I would say it is way easier now to go make a movie outside of the system in the United States make an independent movie than it was when I made Malibu Road because everything has become financially balkanized. Yeah. I'm actually not totally pessimistic because I think 10 years ago, there was this sense of like this one mass normative mainstream in some ways, the balkanization yeah. into like these niches in some ways it actually provides opportunities I as think opposed so to the past where it's one just mass mainstream. And you don't need like a hundred million people to watch your movie or your YouTube channel or your uh, TV show or your news broadcast or whatever to be successful. You need 
to target your audience. And that audience might only be, uh, you know, 10,000 people or 100,000 people or a million people or 10 million people. But there's so, the, there's so many people in the denominator. There's 8 billion people on the planet. And so your numerator can be very small relative to the denominator in terms of what you're bringing to the world in terms of your expression or your creative output or if you're building a power tool or whatever. You're selling razors. It doesn't matter. Right now, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be an entrepreneur and to go out and do your own thing since the 1880s and 1890s. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like it's more opportunities like via via niches at 100%. And uh, so, yeah, so Montgomery Marklin, thanks so much for being on. I really enjoyed hey, Malibu Road. And also, uh, yeah, also thank you, Matt Pegas. Of course. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Hey, wait, I wanted to ask one question before yeah. we wrapped up. I want to hear what each of you think Malibu Road is about. It's multifaceted. We covered so many different things, but if if I was forced to say like what it's about in one sentence, yeah. I know this is going to sound super super cliche, and people say this about Lynch films as well as a cliche. Mm-hmm. But I, if I had to say one sentence, I'd say it's about one's perception of reality, what is real and what's not. Yeah, yeah, and I'd add to that, um, you know, obviously the the CIA uh, or, or governmental. Uh, element to that. Mm-hmm. It's about how um, broader institutions have a play a role in forming that for the populace. Forming the perception of reality for normative individuals. Exactly. Kind of like that scene with a punch bowl is a microcosm of uh, everything. Right. Like ev- everything is now somebody putting something in that punch bowl. Exactly. We're living yeah. in the punch bowl. I could, <laughs> yeah, we're in the punch bowl. <laughs> I like it. I think that's right. I mean, that's a lot of that's similar to why I made it. Because yeah, I was in the punch bowl in Hollywood, and I was like, I don't like any of these movies anymore. I don't like any of these games. I'm going to make my own games. I'm going to make my own movies. And yeah. uh, you know, because I'm going to make things that I want to watch. Absolutely. No, it's very aspirational. I'm thinking that's a good note. Good note. Yeah. Thanks. For, thanks for the time. I've, yeah, I've no, I'm sure it. we'll keep talking more in the future. Yeah, absolutely.